Hello, readers. Bob Stoops was the head football coach at the University of Oklahoma from 1999 through the 2016 season. His 18 years in Norman included a national championship in 2000, 10 Big 12 titles, and three Heisman winners. Andy's just written a book about his life in football. It's called No Excuses, The Making of a Head Coach, and you can get it now wherever books are sold. Bob, thank you for the time. How are you today? I'm great. So, uh, Bob, what was your goal in writing No Excuses? You know, as much as anything through the years, I've been asked a hundred times, you know, how, how did I become a head coach? How can I become a head coach? Another person, how can I do it? And what was your path? And it's really just impossible to explain to somebody in a five-minute conversation. As well as, you know, I'm asked all the time, how did we change the culture at Oklahoma so fast when, you know, after so many years without – a conference or national championship, how did we jumpstart it and keep it so consistent so fast with going undefeated in our second year and then winning, you know, so many Big 12 championships and also, you know, uh, competing for three other national championships. So, again, and those are just hard questions that, to answer to people in a few minutes. So I figured if this will help somebody and in my path, my journey, this is how I did it and these are some of the things we felt were important at Oklahoma to, you know, to play so consistently for so long and to jump started as fast as we did. And your story, of course, includes growing up in Ohio around a loving family, a family that was involved in football. What was life like growing up in Youngstown, Ohio in the 60s and 70s? Oh, it was, it was fantastic. Just the old steel mill uh, town, uh, you know, old neighborhoods. Uh, we all some of your, your best buddies were your buddies in the streets that, you know, that you, you grew up with on the same block in the same street, you know, played football in the streets and, uh, it was the best, you know, just a different way, you know, there's all the little homes, single, single row driveways with a single detached garage in back. Everybody kind of had the same style home, but it was great. You know, we, uh, we had a ball and I was very fortunate to grow up that way. Your dad, Ron, is obviously a big part of this book, especially early on as you were talking about your childhood. He may have actually been one of the first high school coaches to break down game film. How did he do so, and what did you learn from him regarding watching film? Well, back in those days, uh, it was the 8mm reel-to-reel film, you know, the projector clickety-clack, you know, and he would set it up on the kitchen table and 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 view it on the uh, the white uh, refrigerator, you know, that was all we had. And, um, you know, he'd go back and forth studying tendencies, studying players, what, you know, all of that, uh, that we all do today. Um, but you know, he was meticulous about it. And the reason he did it at home, uh, rather than staying at the office, my mother was dealing with six kids at home. So he had to come home and kind of help her referee, if you know what I mean, you know, so he had a <laughs> He had to help control the house, and so he did his work at home, and he could break up whatever mischievous we, uh, mischievous this we might have been in, and help my mother. So uh, anyway, uh, we grew up watching him do that, you know, for years. Was there a no pop or no going into the fridge policy when he, the film projector was actually on? Oh no, 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 no! You could always with with. Six little kids running around. We were opening the fridge left and right, whatever. <laughs> he just rewind it, rewind the film, and go back to where he was. But, uh, no, he was uh, he was good about letting us get in and out of it. 
So we're going to fast forward a little bit to the end of your high school football career. As a 5'11", 165-pound high school defensive back, you weren't exactly flooded with offers to play at the next level. For a while, your decision was between staying home to attend Youngstown State or to travel west to play at Southern Illinois in Carbondale. But then something unexpected happened. Iowa came calling. How did that happen, and what was it like to get that offer? Well, it was great. Um, you know, fortunately for me, Bob Cummings, the head coach at uh, at, at Iowa at the time, uh, you know, gave me an opportunity. Uh, he saw something in me. Uh, you know, he was from Youngstown himself. So he, uh, and, and, you know, I played ball with my dad a couple years older than him. So I guess he, he figured he'd get, take a chance on me and I'd be tough enough or good enough to be able to, to make it work. And fortunately, that's what happened. But, uh, you know, that was a big break for me uh, to, to, to be, have a chance to go to Iowa and play in the Big Ten. Shortly after you got to Iowa, actually uh, at some point towards the end of your freshman year, you were really struggling with things in Iowa City. And as a matter of fact, you went back home with the thought that you might end up quitting the Iowa football team and trying to latch on someplace else. Why did that not end up happening? Yeah, I had it in my head. I was for sure. Just after my first semester, I was miserable. Just a cultural shock of a steel mill town to now being in, you know, out in the country at, at Iowa, which is a great place, by the way. But at the time, I didn't know it and wasn't used to it. And, you know, so just a lot of things were tough. We had bad season and things weren't working out. And uh, I went home talking about transferring. I was going to quit Iowa and go somewhere else or go back home and finally I had brought it up one too many times and my father gave me some future several choice words and that I can't say on the <laughs> uh, on the radio and uh, gave me a bunch of tough love and he, he he wasn't having it he felt I hadn't given it a good enough shot and he didn't want to hear it anymore so I was going back to Iowa and <laughs> fortunately for me I did I went back to Iowa and in the spring practice, uh, earned a starting job at safety and started the next four years at safety at Iowa, played in the Rose Bowl, Peach Bowl, and, of course, then went on to coach with Hayden Fry and all those great coaches for the next five years after I graduated. So surely this whole path for me and would never have been had I quit, and I'm sure I would never have been the head coach at Oklahoma had I walked away and quit Iowa. So you know, a little bit of tough love out there for some parents goes a long way. No question about that. Speaking with Bob Stoops right now, of course, the former head coach at Oklahoma, the current head coach of the Dallas Renegades in the XFL, and author of the new book, No Excuses, The Making of a Head Coach. Bob, you just alluded to it, but after your playing career, you did eventually get into coaching. Was that something that happened pretty immediately after you graduated? And if not, what got you into the profession? Well, it was my last semester at Iowa. I was graduating as a business major in marketing, and they have those job fairs at the union where you go by and visit with different companies and you kind of interview with them. And I had interviewed with a couple, and, you know, I had that football neck back then where you can't button your top button because <laughs> the shirt, you know, to make your neck's too big and the tie was sloppily tied. And, you know, and uh, anyway, I – do the interviews and I think this is kind of boring I don't know that I'd want to I don't want to do this work for a company and sit behind a desk and so anyway I uh I go back to the football office after doing the interviews and 
Barry Alvarez and Dan McCarney, who have been two great friends and mentors to me, and you know they were great coaches as well. They're laughing at me, and they by the way I look, and they're like, "What in the heck have you been doing?" <laughs> and I told them, and and they laughed at me, and they said, "You don't need to be going over anywhere to interview. You just need to stick around here with us and coach." And I, I like the sound of that. I was like, you know, that sounds like a lot of fun. So that's kind of where it, it, it began, you know, that, that spring, my, my, my last year at Iowa. Such a ridiculously talented staff at Iowa at that time. But eventually you transition from GA at Iowa to an assistant position at Kent State, which was great for you because it puts you much closer to Youngstown and, of course, your mom and dad and other family members back home. But unfortunately, tragedy struck your family in 1988 when your dad, then 54 and in good shape for someone 15 years his junior, started feeling Ill, Ill on the sideline of a high school game he was coaching before eventually suffering a fatal heart attack in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. In the book, your mom, brothers, and sisters all share their memories of that point in time. What is your recollection of that night and the days that followed? And all these years later, what are some of the things you still cherish most about your dad? Yeah, I can't really, you know, I'm not going to sit and... uh you know, go back through it all. It's in the book, and and I I do the audio version of the book, and and it um, you know explains all of it. Uh, but you know, it was uh, it was hard to take. Uh, you know, those uh, those moments you you never forget them, and um, you know you got to know my my father was still playing fast pitch softball that summer. Never drank, smoked. You know, was in he appeared to be in great shape, and just in an instant, it's you know, he was taken. So, um, you know, so those, those moments don't lead you. Um, I, I kind of alluded to it in the book too, that I believe I was sent home. I, I was really the first one in my big, large family to leave home so far away, 10 hours away. And I'd been gone 10 years, you know, five as a player, five as a coach. And I'd been gone 10 years and, you know, sure enough, I'm sent it's like God directs you back home. I was there nine months to be around my father more and my and my mother, but and then you know and then this happens, but but at least I you know I was sent home and able to be around a lot before the the, the tragedy and it's just uh, it affects you it affects you till you know to, to this day. Very understandable. Shortly after that you received the opportunity to join the Kansas State coaching staff. And Bill Snyder, who had been at Iowa, was just named the head coach there at the end of 1988. When you followed him there as DB's coach, just how bad was that program? And what was the key to the turnaround? Yeah, it's almost in people, you can't really describe it, how bad we were. We we arrived, they had not had a, a win. They had not won a game in three years. At a time when you could have probably 95 scholarships, I bet we didn't have 55. And, you know, we go out to spring practice. I think we had a total of four defensive linemen to practice with. Wow. And I think two of them were non-scholarship. So it was just in total disarray. And, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, again, I had total faith in Coach Snyder. And he had been part of the staff, you know, to turn us around at Iowa. And I, I felt all along that we would get it done. I never doubted it. And uh, sure enough, it took some time, but, but we, we eventually won it. Started to win and win consistently. Yes, you guys did. And that included what you consider to be one of the biggest wins of your coaching career 
that was, I believe, your first win at Kansas State. What were the circumstances surrounding that one? Yeah, we, we had fallen behind late in the game against North Texas State. We had already been beaten maybe a game or two before by Indiana State. So we were just, you know, just thinking you can't win here. And then in the last minute, we put on a drive, and with, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds to go in the game, we hit a, a corner route to Frank Hernandez to win the game. And, I mean, it, it, the few people that were there stormed the field, tore down the goalposts. They took it downtown. We rang the victory bell. And to this day, of all, I've won a couple national championships and a lot of conference championships. have been fortunate to be in a lot of great games. And that one ranks up there with all of them as as one of my all-time favorites because I never had been anywhere where someone needed to win so bad. After several years at Kansas State up in Manhattan, you eventually become the D.C. there, are very successful in that role, and eventually you find your way to Florida and head ball coach, of course, Steve Spurrier, and while you were very successful in your time in Gainesville, there was something hap- that happened early on in your Florida tenure that really tested your relationship with head ball coach. What was that? Well, there was just in our second game that I was there at Florida, we just had a you know disagreement or he you know, was questioning the players about what coverage we might have been in and wasn't a very good coverage or you know, just wanted the ball back. It's a frustrating game anytime you play a triple option team. Uh, that's going to go for it on fourth down all the time, control the ball. And he just want, you know, was used to getting the ball back. And the bottom line, we, we had just a little bit of a disagreement. And at the end of it all, you know, it never happened again. We spent three years together. And to this day, he's one of my dearest friends or best, best friends. And we talk all the time and was a great mentor to me. Uh, so anyway, but it was uh, – you know, we straightened it out real quick and, 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 of course, went on to win the national championship that year as well in 96. Two great years of success at Florida meant that you were a wanted man. Two schools interviewed you for their head coaching vacancy after that second year. Your alma mater, Iowa, in Oklahoma, why did you end up choosing the Sooners? Well, it's really pretty simple. I had interviewed with both within a day of each other, Oklahoma first and then Iowa second. And Oklahoma had offered me after the interview, and Iowa actually didn't. So at the end, uh, I only had one opportunity to take, and it was Oklahoma. And I was lucky and fortunate for that because it's a great job. And Iowa had Kirk Ferentz to interview next. And, uh, you know, obviously Kirk's done a great job at Iowa. Is a, again, one of my a great, great friend to me. And so I'm happy it worked out great for both of us, really. In the end, it, it worked out great for both of us in both programs. It certainly did. Early on, it paid off. Uh, you guys win the national championship in 2000. Despite being number one heading into that championship game matchup with Florida State, the Seminoles were a very popular pick to win that one. They were good defensively and especially on offense with Heisman winner Chris Winkie, but you guys shut them down to win 13-2. to You write that the victory changed everything. How did it change everything, and why were you not quite ready for that just yet? Well, just, you know, once you win it all and, uh, you know, in your second year, just overall people start to treat you a little bit differently and your your requests of, for opportunities to speak or to go here, go there, multiply tenfold. Um, just on, on and on. Just a lot of things change. And, uh, you know, if you're not ready for it, 
it's uh, it's not easy to handle. I had some issues with, you know, uh, whether, you know, you deserve to have all this attention. And I don't like attention. I, I like no one likes being a just a regular old guy more than I do. <laughs> and you, you almost couldn't be. You know, you had all this these obligations to fulfill and live up to. And my wife, even one time I told her, after so many things I had to go do and responsibilities to speak and this, that, and the other, I said, you know, I say, I say no to 90% of the things that come across my desk. And she's never complained. She's just making me aware because we had little kids at the time. She says, you have how that 10% has changed or how, how that much that 10% has grown. And I was like, Oh yes, I, I do get it now. You know, sure. I'm saying I, no to 90%, but that 10% has grown tenfold. So, but anyway, so there's just a lot to handle with success and uh, as well as with failure. You know, some people think, oh, it's always great, but you know, there's, there's something to the, the psych psychologically to handle and success as well. Just a couple more questions for Bob Stoops, the former head coach at Oklahoma, current head coach of the Dallas Renegades in the XFL and author of the new book, No Excuses, The Making of a Head Coach. You admit that the biggest mistake of your coaching career involves the 2004 championship game versus USC. What was that mistake? Well, I just um, I I uh, I didn't get the pulse of my team. They their the entire motto the entire year was to finish, and we had finished. Uh, you know, from the year before, we lost the Big 12 championship and lost the national championship the year before, and our guys we had rolled through the Big 12 championship in 2004 and. You know, and their whole model and their whole mantra was to finish. And uh, for whatever reason, you know, that month leading up to the national championship game with USC, we didn't play our best, and, and that's on me. If we, your team doesn't play their best, for whatever reason, you gotta you got to own it as a head coach. And, and I'm not taking anything away from USC. They were a fabulous football team. They'll go down in the history as one of the top two, three, four teams that ever played probably. So – because uh, they they were an excellent team, but we when you don't play your best, you you know you you take responsibility for it. And I didn't feel, I felt our players were kind of looking to what was next, uh, whether it be NFL careers, uh, signing with agents, things like that. They just weren't they weren't as focused as they had been all year, and and it showed up in the, in the biggest game. And uh, Bob, I'm a, a Longhorns fan, and as I was uh, working my way through this book a couple weeks ago, I was actually fascinated to see just how little you were writing about the annual October experiences against Texas in the Cotton Bowl. But then I got to Chapter 15 titled The Rivalry. You cover it all there. Wins, losses, your relationship with Mac Brown. And there's actually a rumor that's been floating around Austin for a number of years regarding your first win over Texas in 2000. The story goes that the week of the matchup, you guys were watching game film of the Longhorns, and it took about 10 minutes of watching Greg Davis's offense to know that you were about to kick their asses that Saturday. Considering the final score was 62-14, to is there any truth to that rumor? Well, there actually is. Uh, Bobby Jack Wright tells it the best, and he's right. I uh, One thing I detest in big weeks, big games, I don't want my coaches tired. I don't want my players tired. I want everybody full of energy, and I want everyone confident, um, you know, no matter what. And so I, I went down the hallway, you know, earlier than usual on that Sunday where, where we finished the game we just played the week before grading it and then we're getting pre preparation for the next week you know watching the opponent 
So we're watching Texas over and over, and I'd watched about three games, and I, I wanted my guys out of there early. I wanted them fresh for tomorrow. I wanted them confident, and I started little by little going down the hall telling everybody to get get out. I said, let's get out of here early tonight. And I said, we're going to, we're going to kick the SH whatever out of these guys. And I said, I want everybody ready to go tomorrow, fired up and excited and, and rested. And that was it. And uh, we did leave out early. And the rest of the week, we had a great week and obviously played great in that game. Was that the same year that Mac was a little bit demeaning towards you in your pregame handshake? I think it was that year where no, he wasn't, he, not at all demeaning. Listen, Mac was never intentional to be demeaning, but he just, you know, I was a little bit younger than him and I hadn't been a head coach very long. And he kind of, after he was shaking my hand at midfield, then just reached around and grabbed me by the back of my neck with his, with his left hand and trying to, I don't know, I just took it as like I was his. I don't know, little buddy or, you know, nephew or something like that. I, and, you know, in those days, you're looking for anything to get mad at and, uh, and uh, get a chip on your shoulder about. But I didn't uh, – I just I just felt, you know, he just kind of grabbed me by the back of the neck that, hey, wait a second, now I'm, I'm not your little buddy. <laughs> so, you know, right or wrong, that's how I took it, you know. Nobody likes to be grabbed by the nape of the neck. Is Texas OU the best rivalry in college football? Oh, it's as good as any. Um, I think there's others that are, you know, equally great, uh, you know, uh, especially when the two programs are playing well. But it's, you know, the fact that you play in the state fair and the Cotton Bowl that sits in the middle of the Texas State Fair, which there's, I don't know, two hundred to 300,000 people wandering around and you weave your buses in to get there and all kind of hand gestures, you know, flung at you and it's, you know, uh, 90-some thousand, half of it's crimson, half of it's burnt orange. Every play is allowed because one side or the other is making a play. It's special. You know, both locker rooms are right across from each other in the same tunnel. So it's uh, it's as special as it comes. Why are Thursdays at OU Children's Hospital at OU Medicine so important to you, Bob? Well, it gives you a perspective. That's, that became my mission way back in 2000 to you know, you get spread thin on how you try and help in charities. And I, I found, I got, went up to visit some, the cancer ward up on the 10th floor at the OU Children's Medical Center. And, and from then on, I started going as much as I could Thursday, Fridays, whatever, before games and visit with the kids uh, for a while and hopefully get their mind off the problems and the, and the illness and the, and the pain they're dealing with. And, you know, it also gave me a huge perspective. If you ever get to feeling a little bit down or that you're having troubles, you, you go up there and you get slapped in the face real quick that these are real troubles and these are real challenges that these kids and families are dealing with. And, you know, you don't, you don't have anything to be sulking around about. And, uh, you know, so it, it'll give you a fast perspective. But I've got a lot of great, great relationships through the years with families and children and their, and their parents from, you know, from my visits up there. And regarding the XFL gig, it was announced yesterday that you guys are holding a two-day draft next week where you're going to select 71 different players for that initial roster. What is the strategy going into a two-day affair like that where you're having to take so many guys, some of whom you may not know a ton about? Yeah, that's October 15th, 16th, Tuesday, Wednesday here next week. And we do know a lot about these guys. We research them. We know them. The whole staff, we're watching tape we're visiting with our scouting 
uh, uh, fire uh, personnel department. So we, we're, this isn't a shot in the dark. We, we know a lot about these players. And so the whole idea is going to be to get the best players. Is, are you pretty happy to uh, be uh, to, to be coaching young men while also not having to deal with sucking up to 16, 17, 18-year-old kids and dealing with transfer portals and things like that? Oh, I never minded, uh, you know, dealing with recruiting and, and all of that. There's a lot of great, you know, young men out there that you get to recruit and their families and all. But I'm glad I don't have to deal with academics and missed classes and, uh, and compliance issues and on and on, you know. So that'll be different. And working with guys that are, you know, more mature and have played a lot of football already. So it's, it's, it'll be exciting and fun football to watch and then to coach in. And final question here, Bob. It's a simple one, but uh, I would imagine it's something that's pretty profound to you. What does football mean to you? Oh, geez, it it, uh, it just you learn a lot about yourself. Um, you know, a lot of self reflection and and um, and and discovering what you what you can do in tough and challenging situations. You learn you learn cooperation and and respect for others and. And uh, you learn to fight uh, as much as anything. Uh, I love the competition of it. And I, I love the self-discovery of, of having to fight and work and strive for something that isn't given to you. You know, on a football field, nothing's given to you. Uh, even your spot to get out there and find a chance to play and start, you got to fight for it and earn it. And, and there's nothing like that accomplishment um, of working for something and, and, and coming out on a positive side of it. He is Bob Stoops, former head football coach at Oklahoma, the current head coach of the Dallas Renegades in the XFL, and author of the new book, No Excuses, The Making of a Head Coach. We barely scratched the surface of some of the great stories and adages and advice that Bob gives throughout the book, No Excuses. Cannot recommend this enough to you. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Bob, thank you so much for the time today, man. Really appreciate it. Okay, great to be with you. Have a good day.